I was 12 years old and seated in the back of my parents' Oldsmobile 98. Remember those? Olds 98. Wow. That kind of ages me. Uh, what, I, what I remember is how fun it was to go to the drive-in movie theater. In fact, I kind of mourn the fact that there are so many kids growing up in America today who've never had the experience. True, today's modern theaters are something to behold. Most envelop you in reclining seats equipped to hold everything from a person's electronic devices to those gigantic cups of beverage that are sure to send you to the bathroom at least two times during the movie that you're watching. There's no doubt that today's theaters are a spectacle for the senses. That said, however, I really do believe it. Today's kids are missing out on what was at one time an American tradition. For, for me, going to the drive-in meant that we could watch a movie in our pajamas. You, you did not have to dress up. No one had to see you. You're in a car. You could sit comfortably in the familiar confines of your parents' vehicle. Oh, and snacks. They were a given. Order up a jumbo bucket of popcorn with butter and let the movie roll. Only this movie, it really was not the popcorn type. It was serious. It was historical. And it was gripping. I think that's why it's actually stayed embedded in my mind all these years. I'm going to imagine that my parents probably had a debate before deciding on whether to take their kids, me, to see a movie that was rated PG. There would no doubt be blood. There would be shooting, lots of it, and guts, and there would be profanity. And while all these things might seem tame by today's standards, they were the subject of parental debate when I was a kid. That said, the subject matter was one of history, a history that my parents really wanted me to be very much aware of. You see, this was a movie about the great general, George Scott Patton. The film would take us to Normandy, France, the year 1944. While most were unaware, the battle that would soon take place would become a deciding factor in the war between Hitler Germany and the Allied forces. At stake was a small piece of land called the Falaise Pocket, and the objective, well, it was simple. The Allied forces would either contain the vaunted German army within the pocket, or they would fail, allowing the German forces a decided tactical advantage in what had already become a long and hard-fought war. To the front stepped one of America's great leaders, General George Patton, he was a controversial figure within the leadership of the fighting ranks, but about one thing, no one could argue. As the commander of the U.S. tank forces, he was successful in his every endeavor. This battle would put the best of his leadership to test. What I remember thinking about as I sat, pajama-clad, in the back seat of my parents' car was what it must have felt like to be a soldier under Patton's leadership knowing that the battle ahead was critical in nature, but also knowing that it could mean one's personal life was at stake. In the movie, George C. Scott was asked to, uh, to capture the ethos of the speech that Patton would deliver to his third army forces shortly prior to entering what would become known as the Battle of the Bulge. I didn't know it at the time, but Scott's performance of that speech would become one of the Academy of Motion Pictures' most iconic scenes. And there's, of course, a reason for that. The speech itself, 
is absolutely gripping. By the way, if you've never heard the entire speech, I'd encourage you to listen to it. I'm telling you, it will absolutely capture your spirit. Patton begins by recognizing the pivotal role of America in the war against Hitler. Americans, Patton tells his troops, have always played a key role in battle. I love these words, Patton speaks to his men. Quote, Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war, end quote. And then things turn serious. I want you to listen to these words, but not casually or from a place of emotional distance. I really want to invite you to place yourself into the scene. Imagine for just a moment that you're part of Patton's troops. The great general is addressing you. His words are personal. This is what Patton said, quote, you are not all going to die. Only 2% of you right here today would be killed in a major battle. Every man is scared in his first action. If he says he's not, he's a beeping liar. But the real hero is the man who fights even though he's scared. Some men will get over their fright in a minute under fire. Some take an hour. For some, it takes days. But the real man never lets his fear of death overpower his honor, his sense of duty to his country, his innate manhood. End quote and wow. I have to tell you that to this moment, those words captivate me. I'll tell you why. It's because they challenge my sense of where we are as a country today. I want to try something right now. I'm going to read the last words again. The words quoted in General Patton's speech. At this time, as you listen, I want you to answer a single question. The question, how would people living in our culture today respond to these words Here again is the quote. Speaking to his soldiers, Patton says, quote, The real man never lets his fear of death overpower his honor, his sense of duty to his country, his innate manhood, end quote. Now, I want you to think about our culture today. Would people in America today respond positively to these words or would they challenge them? I don't know how you'd answer that question, but but I'm going to be transparent and honest today. I'm not so sure that people in our culture today would respond as positively as the soldiers that served under General Patton in 1944. Soldiers that, by the way, went on to subdue the Germans and turn the war around. In fact, following the famed Battle of the Bulge, the German army was never again able to mount a single offensive. That battle was critical. Today, not so much. No. When I think about our culture, I can only imagine that there would be many that would object to the idea of honoring our country or fighting for its principles. And and I do not say this to in any way disparage the many brave young men and women that make up our current fighting forces. These are all heroes in my book. I salute every one of them. But I also recognize that we're living in divided times where too many would thumb their noses at the idea of fighting for America. And you know what? That scares me to death. Again, I'm just being transparent. When I look at the condition of our divided world, I see significant conflict and division. 
North Korea flexing its nuclear capabilities, Russia on the offensive in the Ukraine, China angry, reeling from the uprising of dissidents in its midst. And so let me ask you this, would we be ready if one of these were to declare war today? Would we be ready? Don't answer too quickly. Here's why I ask. Today we're going to rejoin the biblical character of Daniel in the ninth chapter of his inspired writing. And in so doing, I want to recognize that where we meet Daniel is at a place where a war of different sorts is taking place. Externally, that is, on the grounds of history, the war that's taking place is between the pagan nation of Babylon and God's chosen Israel. A war we become aware of that God hands over to Babylon. But there's a greater war. What we learned in our journey has to do not with an external, but an internal war, a war for the hearts of Israel. And God is intent on winning that war. Simply said, Israel, God's chosen people, have wandered away from him. They've lost their calling and identity in him. And God wants his people back. When God hands Israel over to Babylon, it is for the purpose of disciplining them. And we've learned He's been disciplining them, bringing Israel back to himself for some 70 years. Now, what God is doing here, simply put, is taking a people who were not ready to fight his war for souls and through discipline, making them ready to fight again, which is what I believe makes this book of the Bible so relevant for our times. You see, it's one thing to ask the question, do you believe that the people of our culture would be ready to fight for our American way of life. But it's an entirely different thing to ask, do you believe that the church is ready to fight the greater battle for the souls of lost people? That's where I want to take us today. In today's episode of God Size Living, I'm going to approach our subject a little bit differently. For this episode, I'm actually going to get a little bit more personal. I say that because over the last several years, as we've watched significant shifts take place in our American culture, shifts that I believe are not for our better, I've been asking myself a question. Is the church ready for the battle before it? Our general is different. We're not led by men, but by the very Spirit of God. Our task is different. We're called into battle for the eternities of souls. Our general is different. Our task is different. But there's one thing that remains the same. The troops must be made ready for the battle. And I'm not sure that we are. As the pastor of a local church, I've been asking myself, what steps should the church, should I, be taking to prepare the troops for battle to win souls in a culture that has moved so far away from God that it it has not only lost its foundation, but in many cases, God is not even a visible part of our culture's conversation. Here's what I I don't want to do today. I'm going to share with you five observations that come, not from a book, not from an outside source, but from a lot of prayer on my part. I love God's church. I still believe that the church is the hope of the world. And I say that as one who recognizes that despite all of its faults, God has named the church as that entity he would use to reach souls. As such, I'm committed to do all I can to prepare the troops for the times in which we're living. So what does it mean to do that? What does the church in America today need to become battle ready? Hang on, 
I'm going to fire five times. My top five, number one, at the top of my list, is the need to grow the number of people that are living in an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it this way for too long. The church in the West has existed as an organization instead of a living organism, a living body that's designed to function as the body of Christ. Some time ago, it struck me that somewhere between the conversion of Constantine in 325 AD and these times in which we now live, the Great Commission read, ran headlong into a collision with the spirit of a pragmatically oriented world, and the world won. When Jesus left this earth, he aligned his disciples with only one call, the call to make disciples. And the disciples understood what this meant. As much as they had abandoned everything that they had to follow Jesus, the master was calling them to invite others, the world, into an all or nothing relationship with himself. The early disciples did not concern themselves with producing worship services that might attract crowds. They knew nothing of discipleship programs or any kind of program for that matter. They did not have youth groups or singles groups or senior adult groups. They never conducted a single capital campaign. No, all they knew was Jesus. All they knew was what it meant to awaken each morning and prepare for battle. Where would the Spirit lead them? Who would they meet? Or would the Spirit speak to them into another soul? Their entire being was pointed in one direction, and that direction was eternity. They could feel it deep within their very bones, reaching to their sinews. Jesus was coming back, and he had called them to be walking about as gospel people in our world. This was what the Great Commission was about. And then things changed. Beginning with Constantine, a palpable shift began to take place. This was a shift from church as movement to church as institution. And institutions, as we all know, are something that you join. What began as, go you therefore and make disciples of all nations, soon became, go you therefore and make church members of all nations. Oh, and by the way, if your church does a better job at attracting large crowds of members, you will be rewarded. Flash forward to the church today, where success is often defined by the number of members that you have made. In fact, as time has passed, we've made this church membership thing more and more convenient. All of this contrasts significantly with the words that Jesus used. Jesus called his followers to leave behind that which might tie them to this world. He called those who followed to self-denial, to cross-carrying. There's nothing convenient about it, but there was and is something critical of essence to it, and that something is relationship. It's what Jesus is after still to this day. I do not think that reversing what has become centuries of custom is an easy thing to do, but as the Constantinian church loses its appeal within a growing secular and apotheistic world, a world that has rejected in large part the offer of institutional membership, it's definitely time to recapture the original intention of Jesus, what is desperately needed, if we are to equip the troops to fight. The battle that we are in is authentic relationship. That's my number one. Number two, engaging 
the church to engage the world with the gospel. I'm going to ask you an intensely personal question. I don't ask with the intention of creating shame. It's not my purpose to condemn. But I want to ask, here, here's my question. Ready for this? When, when is the last time, or has there been a time, when you were the person or instrument that God used to bring another human being, soul, into a relationship with himself? When's the last time that you were personally privileged to watch someone that you have been spiritually walking with come to faith? I want to let that question linger for a moment. Here's my observation. Too, Too many followers of Jesus have confidently and confidentially shared with me over the years that their answer to this question is never. In other words, despite the fact that Jesus gave the church only one thing to do, make disciples, most Christians, the greatest majority, would tell you that they've never done so. So so let me ask, why not? I've spent a lot of years in ministry asking people this question. You know what the most common answer is? The most common answer is, I wouldn't have the first idea of where to start or how to bring another person into faith. What we do know is what we do. We know how to invite people to church. But that's not what Jesus called us to do. He called us to make disciples. And and yes, I do know that being church is a posture that grows out of relationship with him. But my emphasis here is on what's happening within the church to produce a situation in which the majority of Jesus' followers acknowledge not knowing how to go about sharing the gospel in any meaningful way. Thus, my focus. Over my years in ministry, I've been party to a number of different movements aimed at equipping believers to share the gospel. I've, I've watched people utilize tracks in an effort to share the gospel, not something I would recommend, especially in our current cultural milieu. I've been taught the Kennedy questions, dialogue evangelism. I've watched our own church body seek to develop of late a Lassie approach to evangelism. Pastors are encouraged to purchase various Lassie modules that are to be installed in the church. I want you to tell me something. Does that even sound remotely close to what Jesus had in mind when he gave the original 12, I guess 11, apostles the Great Commission? Somehow, I don't think so. No, I, I believe that is important in our world today to equip Jesus' followers to engage those in their circles that are apart from faith in as authentic a way as possible. Faith sharing is deeply personal. It's relational. It's an adventure. And I believe that if the troops are to go to war, it is critical to arm them with simple but intentional approaches to being able to share the gospel. Until the church does so, we will continue to function as an entity that is sending its constituency into battle without any weapons at all. Not a good idea. Number three. Number three is intentionality. Not only must we equip the body to share the gospel, but we must become intentional about doing so. You cannot read the Bible and miss this. Read the book of Acts and what do we see? Intentionality. Each day as Paul and the early Christians arose, there lived inside of them an intentionality towards sharing the gospel that day. So often I wonder where that intentionality has gone inside of the church. In fact, hand me a church newsletter or website and a highlighter. In 10 minutes, 
I can tell you what that church is being intentional about. And do you know what is most often discovered? Programs. Programs of one sort or another. Now, does that mean programs are sinful or evil? Of course not. But, but here's what I want to observe. The early Christians didn't have them. What they did have was a bent toward discovering who God would place or had already placed before them that needed to hear the gospel. They were intentional about living in a way that every single day was about sharing Jesus with at least one other person. Can I ask you this? Again, non-judgmental, non-critical. Do you live with that sort of intentionality? By the way, I was thinking about this the other day. I have a, a, a Bible app on my phone. And, and one of the things that the creators of this app have developed is a reward system. Social scientists have demonstrated how powerful reward systems can be for app users. Now, there, there's really not all that much to my Bible app. In fact, you know what it does? It uses a tracker to keep track of how many consistent no-missed days I have read a portion of the Bible on my app. At various junctures along the way, my app will spew out what I'm going to describe as digital confetti to say one thing. Congratulations! You have not missed one day in the last 456. Now, this is embarrassing to admit, but I'm going to admit it anyway. I like the confetti. I do. It makes you feel good. After all, I made a commitment to read the Bible every day and look, I have digital confetti to prove to myself you have done it. The confetti works. So let me ask you this. If you had a tracker on your phone that kept track of how many days each week, month, year, you very intentionally made yourself available to the Spirit towards sharing the gospel with another person, if it kept track of those days, would you get confetti? Here's my point. We're at war. In a war, troops must be highly intentional about engaging in battle. That's my number three is intentionality. It must become part of the lives of Jesus' followers. Number four, balance. By the way, number four might be the most significant challenge to the church today. There must become a learned balance in the church between authentically loving people, people who may represent everything that you oppose, and yet standing firm upon the truth of the word. This is hard stuff. I think that most of us are aware that over the last three decades, a great deal of research has uncovered the fact that many of those outside of the church find it to be offensive for one reason. They believe that Christians are by and large judgmentally orientated. In other words, while the world is seeking to embrace the messy human condition and nature of being, the church is seen as busying itself with judging and speaking out against modern sins. Because of this, many have closed the door to anyone that comes in the name of Jesus. But open the Bible, and what do we see? Jesus meeting people, people who are a mess, and meeting them where they are. Now, does this mean that the church must become silent about sin? Not, not at all. In fact, the one thing that I find appealing about Jesus and his approach to people was this beautiful way of embracing a sinner yet confronting their sin. There's not one single incident or episode in the Bible where Jesus embraces a sinner and simply turns away from the sin. Jesus never cheapens the grace that he offers by in any way suggesting that sin is okay. He never permissions a person to remain in it. 
but instead calls them through the power of the gospel to leave it behind. In Jesus, there's this beautiful balance. What I'm saying is, I believe that we must learn it. It's too easy to lean one way or the other, either toward engaging in judgment-oriented rhetoric or toward approving of sin. The Bible calls for neither, but rather for learning what it will mean to meet people where they are and authentically love them in Jesus Christ. Which leaves number five. How do we prepare the troops for battle? By equipping ourselves as gospel sharers for the long haul. This could probably be said in a number of ways, but I'm going to share it through a bit of an anecdotal story. Growing up in the church, I, I've been taught a number of different evangelism techniques. I've been introduced to a number of different evangelism programs, and in some ways, over the years, become a student of these. Now, I've become aware of one fallacy common to most. You know what it is? Expectation. Most evangelism programs utilized in our world today inherently promote an expectation that conversion happens rapidly. In fact, when I was first introduced to the world of evangelism, I was taught straight out of a program developed by a pastor named James Kennedy. Pastor Kennedy served a church in Coral Ridge, Florida and became famous as an equipper of evangelists. His program revolved around sending evangelists into neighborhoods in twos to knock on doors. As the doors opened, occupants were met with two questions. If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? Number two, why? If St. Peter were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? The expectation was that these two questions would lead to conversations that would open the door for the presentation of the gospel. This was that magical moment in the visit where the home occupant, were they not already Christian, would convert to Christianity. There's only one problem. Never worked that way. Nor does conversion often happen rapidly. I believe that what we've done is a disservice to Christians by giving the impression that the gospel sharing is quick and easy. It's not. It's neither. It's messy. You know why? It requires that you not only meet a person where they are, but that you be prepared to walk with them through objections, stereotypes, disagreements they have, and oh my goodness, it requires patience and love, especially love. I believe this is why in most cases evangelism has been reduced to simple inviting someone to church and hoping that professionals will do the rest. Inviting someone to church is easy. It takes little time and almost no investment. It's also not what we are called to. Now, I believe if we're to succeed at preparing our troops for this new epoch in which we find ourselves, we're going to have to go back to doing it Jesus' way. Will it be easy? No, it will not. But anything less would be the equivalent of what General Patton might call laying down our arms and giving up. That's not what Jesus has called us to do. I want to thank you for listening today. I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years really thinking about this stuff. I believe that the church is entering one of the most exciting periods of history. Jesus said it this way, there's a time and a time and a half a time, and then his return. I believe that we are, are entering a period of time where his return is close until his return into battle we march. Well, that's it for this week on God's Size Living. I'm going to continue to pray for you and ask that you pray for me. I, um, I certainly enjoy spending this time together and pray that you have a God-sized week. Mm-hmm.